I posted a video a couple days ago where I went over the 1946, 47, 48 supply shock case because it offers a very good parallel and therefore a window inside of what we're experiencing today. What we saw was that consumers who had built up an enormous pile of savings suddenly let them loose at the end of World War II and with supply restricted in a way that should sound very familiar, the only way for the economy to adjust in the United States is with rapidly accelerating consumer prices. In fact, the CPI at one point was rising at a nearly 20% annual rate. But, and here's the important point, as Americans ran out of their savings, that was the end of the inflation, the quote-unquote inflation. Now, it didn't happen all at once. There was a period of adjustment, a disinflationary phase that we went through before we got to the deflationary recession in the second half of 1948 and 1949. But as consumers rebuilt their savings, that's when the consumer price pressures diminished and ultimately turned into the recession. Which brings us to today, where we see pretty much the same setup. Same setup where consumers, well, they didn't actually save any money, but they were, they, were, they were handed the equivalent of savings in Uncle Sam's redistributions in 2020 and 2021, with restricted supply led to a, a burst of consumer price pressures. But as consumers have exhausted those quote-unquote savings, we've seen the same disinflationary transition heading its way toward a deflationary recession. And because U.S. consumers are a big part of the global economic marketplace, the spillover has been felt all around the world, not just in the June CPI disinflation there, but in a whole bunch of things, including ConAgra Foods, a major food producer that mentioned the D word, deflation in some of its brands already in its quarterly earnings report just a couple days ago. We've seen, for example, India's exports collapse, utterly collapse in one of the worst monthly numbers in its modern data history for the month of June. And guess who happens to be India's biggest export customer? You bet the U.S. In the United States itself, we've seen commercial banks continue, continue the credit crunch, which is now reaching, apparently, you guessed that one too, consumer loans. So the U.S. consumer is in big, in big trouble in exactly the way which we saw back in the 1940s. And just like the 1940s supply shock, disinflation is heading its way toward deflationary recession, where the consequences more this time than that time will be felt all around the world. So we've got we've got a consumer food company talking about deflation. We've got India's exports, especially to the United States. We've got U.S. commercial banks cutting back on commercial credit. But first, I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. Thank you very much for joining me. If you're interested, Eurodollar University has memberships available, exclusive content where we talk about what the Eurodollar is, what it's supposed to do, and why it isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing. Especially lately, we've been talking a lot about collateral, securities, lending, transformation, and hypothecation, all that good stuff. We also have research subscriptions. I do a daily briefing that I contribute with marketsinsiderpro.com. I also have a daily deep dive analysis at the Eurodollar University website where we dive deep into all the Eurodollar topics as well as how money impacts macro and how macro impacts money, what is going on in the global economy and its monetary marketplace, not so much central banks, all the information available for you, memberships as well as research subscriptions at our website, eurodollar.university.
I think a good place to start here today is actually way overseas or way on the other side of the world from here in the United States, though it's much closer in the, in the economic circumstances than you might otherwise uh, believe. India is actually one of the world's top crude oil importers. Lots of crude oil comes into India, but it's also become one of the top oil or petroleum products exporters because India, unlike many places around the world, has more refinery capacity than it needs for the internal Indian economy. So lots of crude oil imported goes in and a bunch of that comes out and gets exported around the rest of the world, including to, over the last several years, one of India's biggest customers has become the United States. No surprise because the U.S. won't invest in its own refinery and energy production infrastructure. So India has filled that void. And so what India reported as far as imports as well as exports for the month of June and really going back to that magical month of March when we had the banking crisis just show up out of nowhere, according to the Federal Reserve. Exports have been down, imports have been down, and then they've accelerated the downside just recently. Here's the numbers that the, uh, the Indian government just reported. Imports were down 14.2% year over year in the month of June. And that, again, mostly crude oil. So you can see here how India's exports matched basically the price of crude oil on the global marketplace. But not all of that is just price changes. We also have volume declines too. After all, if there's less demand for uh, oil and oil refined products, there's gonna be less demand in India for crude. But the real big one here, exports. Exports were down by a shocking 22% year over year. And as you can see, Massive acceleration in the decline after a short-lived rebound earlier in the year consistent with China reopening and a little bit of a burst in Europe and other, other places, which happened to buy a lot of India's refined petroleum products. Because again, India has excess petroleum refined products to sell in the global marketplace, and a lot of that ends up in the United States. So as America is one of the biggest one of India's biggest export customers. A minus 22% year-over-year decline is one of those that gets your attention. What must be going on in the U.S. that would cause such a dramatic, not just a big decline, but also the acceleration that we've seen since March and April. March and April, credit crunch developing from the banking crisis. And a credit crunch that we can see, or at least the effects of that credit crunch that we, that we can see, through the lens of a major food producer here in the U.S., ConAgra Brands. ConAgra Brands just reported some pretty sobering uh, earnings and uh, earnings results as well as forecast, blaming several headwinds uh, for the more, more pessimistic outlook in particular, but also for what's going on in their current quarterly results. And what they've said was, well, we're having trouble selling our goods to consumers because apparently consumers aren't behaving in the way that we expected them to. We expected spending to drop, they said. We expected spending to come down a little bit because of course rate hikes, everybody says rate hikes is depressing demand, but they expected to come down a bit from last year's comparisons, but this is going far beyond that. Here's what the CEO had to say on the conference call just a couple days ago. First, shifting consumer behavior, as you can see in the weekly scanner data, food companies are starting to wrap pricing in the year-ago period, and dollar sales are coming down as expected. But the rate of improvement in volume recovery 
is lagging because as we know simple economics price goes down volume should go up it should spark a little bit of extra demand going back to conagra that suggests new consumer behavior shifts beyond the initial elasticity effects that occurred when pricing actions were initially taken we have seen this dynamic since just after easter again the timing here and it has been broad based across many categories and competitors and importantly where we see it it is usually not a trade down to lower priced alternatives within that category rather it's an overall category slowdown the question is why now given the steadiness we have seen from the consumer for two years that's the that's the relevance of the 1947 48 46 47 48 49 supply shock case because once savings got depleted suddenly it was this as if the consumer began to change its behavior too and they did the american consumers consumed less to build to rebuild their savings exactly what we've seen over the last year but as ConAgra says here, it's not just about rebuilding savings since the middle of 2022. Something has happened, in their words, since Easter, which we'll get to in just a minute here. But going back to ConAgra, they offer a couple, couple of uh, additional explanations here that it makes some sense, but also leave, you, leave us asking the right questions. There are several possibilities at the root of this. One behavior shift that we have heard about from consumers is just buying fewer items overall, more of a hunkering down than a trading down, which makes sense. There are several potential reasons as to why, including this summer being more travel intensive last year. We know that's not the case, as we talked about with the Stephen Van Meter Disney Park Attendance PMI, which has really plummeted recently. So travel plans maybe to an extent but this is a broad base weakness that is extending all over the place overall we view this dynamic as likely temporary behavior shift for consumers to stretch their budgets but we have captured it as a near-term headwind in our outlook they always look at these things as near term it's going to it's going to clear up and in any moment now but here's they here's what they also add moving to the second headwind while very limited we have seen a few, few single ingredient brands become deflationary and will make appropriate price adjustments to reflect that. So they're saying it's going to be short term, but it's already serious. We expected, they expected volume to increase as prices started to come down, become disinflationary. That didn't happen. So if consumers are shifting their behavior. It's disinflationary and even deflationary. And something has changed since around March and April. And we know what that is. It's a credit crunch and it's not a temporary shift. It is like 1948 into 1949, disinflation from the, from the rebuilding of savings in the United States becoming the deflationary recession. And it happened large part because of this credit crunch that developed since the banking crisis, because the banking system, unlike what the Federal Reserve would have you believe, is nowhere near normal. In fact, they are still retrenching. The latest weekly data we got from the Federal Reserve itself, the H8 figures on commercial banks in the United States, the, the aggregate numbers for the entire commercial banking system, simply emphasize the same thing that ConAgra is seeing, that India is, is seeing in its exports, which is as the credit crunch develops in an already weakened consumer state, it just adds that much, that additional headwind, as they said, to, to a situation, to a consumer, to a consumer situation 
that just can't handle more pressures and more problems. So of course, consumers are changing their behavior because they don't really have any other choice. The jobs market has become uncertain, savings have been depleted, and they can't get the same credit that they used to, certainly at the margins, as before. Here's what the H8 data showed for the first week into July. Bank credit fell by another $35 billion just in the week. These are seasonally adjusted figures. Since mid-March, total bank credit is down now a staggering $305 billion. Really no change there. We had the banking crisis and banks went ultra defensive and they haven't stopped. They're continued to de-risk their bank and loan portfolios, especially selling treasuries and other securities to first of all raise cash, increase their cash cushion, but also to pay down some of those embarrassing and highly problematic emergency borrowings that are still at highly elevated levels. In fact, we still have huge amounts in the BTFP. So securities, they're selling lots of securities, including the first week of July, down 27.9 billion, a cumulative 224 billion since the, uh, middle, the, the middle week of March. But loans, increasingly this de-risking is hitting the, the aggregate bank loan portfolios. Loans are, were down another $7 billion in the latest week after being down by $25.9 billion in the week before and cumulatively since mid-March are down $53.8 billion. Mostly, at least in the initial stage, that had been a shrinking of commercial and industrial loans, that, that, uh, a trend that continued or a trend that went back into the earlier part of this year. But commercial industrial loans, those, have, those were steady the last week or so, up fractionally in the first week of July after being down the final week in June. So those are commercial industrial loans continue to go down. But now we're seeing consumer loans more and more rolling over. In fact, consumer loans as a class, those were down by $8.6 billion in the latest week. But that was the third consecutive monthly or third consecutive weekly decline in the H8 figures, which that's something that hasn't happened in quite some time, three straight weekly declines. And you can see in the chart where it's, it looks like consumer loans are beginning to roll over too. So they had started to flatten out as we saw in earlier data from the Federal Reserve, uh, revolving loans, credit cards softened a little bit, non-revolving loans, especially auto loans that are beginning that are actually contracting and falling. So consumers are they're accessing less credit. First of all, higher rates that depresses demand, but more importantly, uncertainty and a shift in behavior too. Because remember what the ConAgra CEO had said before. The question or asked before. The question is why now given the steadiness we have seen from the for the from the consumer for two years and the answer is in all of these things this is the downside to a supply shock we've seen this time and again throughout economic history including here in the united states especially in the 40s and early 50s where we had these volatile periods of supply shocks where because given you know given the nature of what a supply shock is and how desperately it scrambles all the fundamentals in the economy it doesn't lead to a soft landing. It doesn't leave consumers and businesses in the, the type of situation where they can just gently return back to the way things were before the supply shock began. And with the amount of, of interventions 
that the especially the federal government in the United States had done, but also around the rest of the world, it simply made the situation that much more vol volatile and that much less fundamentally based. And because it's been so, so much more artificial, that presents us with an even bigger downside. A downside that through all of these statistics that we go over today, as well as recently, we're seeing emerge more and more and more and more data. Not just disinflation in consumer prices, not just massive declines in global trade. Of course, India, China, Japan, Germany, the United States with, remember, record decline in export prices. So global trade recession, more and more the downside to the supply shock is emerging. And contrary to what most people are telling you, it's not a soft landing. That's, you don't get the deflationary shock from a soft landing. And with banks cutting back on credit, it makes the downside risks that much more potent. So as we see the deflationary recession continue to emerge as expected from the downside of the supply, supply shock case, the fact that banks continue to de-risk their loan portfolios will only add another major, major headwind to consumers who are already changing their behaviors. I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. Thank you very much for joining me. As always, huge thank you, Eurodollar University research subscribers, Markets Insider Pro research subscribers, and of course, our Eurodollar University members. Until next time, take care.